All right, well, this morning we will begin our new class on Christ and culture, and um, I hope that this will uh, help us over the next couple of months to be thinking, uh, as I prayed, about our interaction as individual Christians, our Christian homes, and as a church on the whole, in how we interact as God's people with the culture around us. So, Uh, This morning, we have a lot of uh, defining to do and thinking about uh, what uh, culture is and um, and how uh, and how that comes to bear on our lives. And uh, so, um, we I want I want this to be uh, a very uh, helpful, um, interactive, and very uh, practical and applicable study for us. So. Um, As you have thoughts, please uh, share them. Um, I think this will be a fun class. I've been looking forward to this, and uh, there's a lot of things uh, to, there's a lot of directions we can go. So um, I want to start with uh, defining um, what culture is. That's uh, going to be our main focus. How do we interact with culture? Well, we have to know what it is first. So someone maybe take a stab. What is culture? How do we define that? Okay? Yeah, our environment, the, the way we were raised, um, the people and the things we were raised around. Good. What else? Okay? Okay? Thoughts and practices of those and just the world generally around us that kind of uh, consumes the world and the space we take up. Yes? Okay? Customs, traditions. What else? Okay, the things that society deems acceptable. Yeah, so there's um, uh, ways of thinking, so worldview is part of that, right? That's a word we'll use a lot, worldview. Um, We've got to think also about art and music and um, food and um, I think someone already said customs, a religious practice and tradition, um, national uh, loyalties and traditions within uh, specific uh, ethnicities and um, uh, national heritages. So let me give you a, a more um, specific kind of cleaned up definition here. A culture is the environment that man builds upon the creation, comprising language, habits, ideas, beliefs, customs, social organization, inherited artifacts, technical processes, artistic expressions, and values. So that, I think, is pretty comprehensive. I don't think I left anything out there. So culture is uh, the water we swim in. It's the world we live in, uh, the air we breathe, whatever other cliche you want to use to talk about um, what we do from, a day to, uh, from day to day. Um, Now, I think it's important, too, as we talk about culture, um, to divide out um, different types of culture. Uh, And we hear these talked about, and I think oftentimes we take for granted that we might know what they are, uh, but oftentimes we we don't. So um, this morning, we're going to spend most of our time uh, dealing with these definitions. And um, specifically, I want to help us understand what is the difference between high culture folk culture and pop culture. And uh, very quickly, I think you'll understand that most of us are mostly familiar with pop culture. 
Um, and we'll talk about whether or not that's a good thing. Okay, so high culture, folk culture, pop culture. So what is, uh, what is high culture? When you hear that, what do you think of? What? Okay, the rich, all right. Did you say something back there, Mark? Yeah, yeah, the upper crust, okay. Cheese, wine, and orchestras, okay. Privileged, okay. Huh? Refined, okay. Anything else? So you, when we talk about high culture, we're talking mainly about certain expressions of art and music and um, Everyone's kind of used this language of uh, privileged and sort of, um, you know, the upper crust and all of these sorts of things. So um, it, it plays, like all culture, it plays in all aspects of fashion and food and what we listen to and who we interact with and how we, uh, the houses we live in, all these sorts of things. So high culture, um, and we'll get to more specific um, uh, illustrations of this, uh, kind of... Um, dwells in the realm of, the, of what the world would consider the most refined. So the best of wines and um, the best of uh, musicians and types of music and the best of artistic, um, uh, best of art that's available in fashion. Now that doesn't, now listen, we're not saying it's good, we're just saying that it's defined uh, by high culture to be the best. Um, and that has a major influence in what we think and, and how we think. So we'll talk about how that plays in. Um, what about folk culture? What is that? Okay, the common, sort of the commoner sort of uh, way of life. Okay, yeah, so it's area-specific, sure. Okay, good. That's, the, that's one of the main parts of it. It's something that's handed down from generation to generation. It has a generational um, heritage. It, there's a line that runs through it, uh, throughout a family or throughout a group of people. It's not uh, specifically defined in one generation. Okay? And pop culture, what is that? Ken? Okay. Here today, gone tomorrow, right? It's evolving, it's changing, it's constantly something new. It's whatever is popular, good, hence the name, pop culture. All right, so um, with these just kind of brief definitions in mind, let's uh, think through some particulars, and then we'll get back to uh, each kind of culture in a bit. Um, So a few quick things that we need to remember as we go through this. The first is this, unless we are talking about a violation of God's law, and specifically the Ten Commandments, we should not rush to judge any particular manifestation of culture as evil in itself. Um, So, literacy in any kind of culture and enjoyment of the various features of it are not inherently sinful. And I'm going to speak specifically um, this morning a lot about pop culture because that tends to be where most of the rub is. I think our, um, uh, the group of people here, we generally write off uh, high culture as something that we just don't like or understand. Um, Folk culture is probably uh, a part of our lives to some degree or another, but all of us are influenced mainly by pop culture. And so 
um, we'll, we'll think a lot about that. But having an understanding of pop culture and even enjoying parts of it are not in and of themselves inherently sinful things. Um, and so that's one principle we have to keep in mind as we evaluate it, um, that we don't just write it off as sinful up front. Secondly, when sin is laid at the doorstep of pop culture, we, we must not locate it in the wrong places. So, sin has to do, when we talk about sin, what are we specifically talking about? Okay, a violation of God's law, and where does that come from within us? Our hearts, right? It's a heart issue. Sin is an issue of the heart. The issue is obedience or disobedience, right? So, to be clear, sin is not located in paint, in alcohol, in syncopation, or as much as I hate to say it, skinny jeans. That's not sin in and of itself. Sin is a condition of the heart, and we have to identify it as such, right? Um, we have a tendency to want to look at certain things, and because we don't like it, we instantly call it sinful without thinking about uh, what goes into something to make it sinful. Motive, right? What is going on in the heart? Um, so sin, when it exists, must always be something that we locate in the human heart, not in an item or uh, something inherently um, necessarily. Uh, third, all human actions have a moral component and direction. So everything we do all day long is aiding us or hindering us in our maturing in Christ. There's nothing neutral in our lives. It's either helping us mature in Christ or it's hindering us in that. Um, so when we, when, when we have said that something is not sinful... Uh, that doesn't mean that it's Im impossible to sin while doing that thing. Uh, so some things, Scripture teaches us, um, may be perfectly acceptable, but man has done a very good job at finding ways to use them for his own sinful uh, devices. So uh, wealth, for example, is one of those. Nowhere in the Scriptures does it tell us being wealthy is sinful. It's not sinful. But the Bible gives warnings regarding sin that comes, and where again is sin located? It's in the heart. So sin that can come as a result of being wealthy or a desire to be wealthy. Uh, so it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for what? A rich man to go to heaven, right. Is that an indictment on the wealthy? No, it is, though, a warning that to be wealthy is, um, is something to... Uh, to, to look at and to know our heart can be wrapped up in this in such a way uh, that we will be tempted to sin. But right away, we run, we run into problems. We experience problems because we get, when we get into different ideas, you're going to see uh, why some of these come out uh, the way they do. But so often, uh, evangelicals especially have this all-or-nothing mentality of how we deal with culture. As soon as anything is pronounced not inherently sinful, we have two tendencies. What are they? What's, if I say something, uh, activity XYZ is not sinful, what are our two tendencies to want to do with that activity? 
Okay, so the first is just absolute kind of libertine ideology. I'm going to jump in 100%. It's not sinful. You can't tell me not to do it or to regulate it or anything of that nature. I'm going to do it, and you can't tell me otherwise, right? It's a full-fledged, head-first jump into the deep end. What's the other extreme? Yeah, sure. So... um, I am going to reject it altogether because even though it's not sinful, it might turn to sin. And so I need another layer of protection. So I'm just not going to even look at it or talk about it. Um, So we have to understand up front that as we talk about these things, we all have these tendencies, especially when we get into things that we just particularly don't like. I don't like it, so I'm going to go uh, to one extreme and say nobody should like it. Or I like it, and uh, it's the greatest thing in the world for me, so I can't understand why in the world you wouldn't. And so you need to like it as well. And if you don't, uh, then um, you obviously don't uh, have um, the greatest good in mind. So we have to acknowledge that cultural issues are always maturity issues. And those are not without um, moral implications. Um, So when we talk about pop culture, we're really talking about consumption, aren't we? Everything in pop culture is about consumption, and especially in 21st century American pop culture. Um, High and folk culture are these things, these uh, vehicles that are supposed to carry sort of that which is more permanent and lasting. And in fact, uh, something like high culture values very much that which is um, enduring. Uh, so uh, a symphony orchestra is playing something fresh today that was written um, in the 1600s, but they want to follow it to the T. If you've ever talked to a classical musician, they don't want to depart from what's written. They want it to be played as precisely as possible as to that which was written in the first place. Um, Folk culture has some of that sort of mentality as well, um, but it, uh, it may change in some regard, but it's still rooted in a historical reality, uh, something that's being passed down through the generations. And so uh, the categories aren't watertight, but there's certain things we can talk about. So, um, for example, one of my favorite forms of music is jazz music. It has roots in high culture and in folk culture. Um, It endures in many ways, but within that, there are certain types of different forms of music, like blues, for example. Uh, Blues music is more pop culture because it's talking about what? What is blues music inherently uh, geared toward? What? Sadness, yeah, sorrow. It's a feeling, right? And what do we know about our feelings? They're one thing today and they're something else tomorrow, right? They're, they're fleeting. And so it's sort of rooted in a time. And so even one category we can look at and see within that there are various forms that, uh, that come and go. So when we talk, though, about pure pop culture, we recognize that... Um, According to its own advocates, it's momentary. It's here today, it's gone tomorrow. So most practitioners um, appear to understand that to get off the stage as quickly as possible is uh, their, uh, 
their best mode of operation. So if you remember Millie Vanilli, they got it right in terms of pop culture. Um, <laughs> some of you are way too young to understand that. Uh, um, but then there's others that sort of hang around and they linger and they're still a part of pop culture and nobody knows why. So Keith Richards still hangs out and we can't figure out what's going on there either. Um, but where, where, do we see, where do we see examples of this in our kind of daily lives, of this idea that something is here today and gone tomorrow in pop culture and it's sort of just taken for granted that that's how it is and that's how it's supposed to be? Technology, sure. Sure. So um, you think of a company like Apple. Uh, you expect when I buy their new phone, within six months there's going to be another new one, and um, everyone and their brother's going to be working to get me to upgrade to the next one. And then once I get it, I upgrade new operating systems. Every day there's a new download for my app to be upgraded, and it's on and on and on and on and on, right? So technology is a big one. What else? Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that even our news cycle is based on this idea of pop culture, that it needs to be short and fragmented. Uh, we need to get out as much information as quickly as possible in the smallest amount of words as possible. And so uh, we've built a culture that thrives on 140 characters or less. Uh, that's uh, even big, huge news stories are here today and gone tomorrow, right? What else? Fashion, yes. So um, it's interesting with fashion, you see cycles though, right? We're kind of, um, I, uh, I don't even like to say it, but we're like fading back into the 80s right now. It's a horrific, awful thing. to It does my heart a grave injustice to even think about that. But we are headed back into the 80s fashion-wise. And so um, leather fringe and all that sort of thing is on its way. Um, but this is pop culture. It fades in and out, right? Fashion is a big one. Um, Lee and then Adam. Sure. So there's, um, there is a big uh, debate among those who are grammarians as to whether language should evolve or not. And so those who are more of the school of kind of Oxford English, uh, they insist on words having and maintaining meanings. And so if you find someone who's more high culture in their understanding of language, they prefer something like the Oxford English Dictionary. Versus someone who thinks words need to be added and changed and transitioned, they're the more Webster's crew. Um, that words take on different meanings and they have different applications. And as the culture evolves with a word, then so should the meaning of those words. And so they redefine them in the dictionary. Um, so uh, what you see in Webster's may not be in Oxford because they refuse to take those in um, and vice versa. So language is a big one. Uh, it has elements in high culture. It also has elements in pop culture. Good. So we get the idea, right, that this world is sort of uh, coming and going in pop culture. Uh, music is another, another one. Um, you know, we have one-hit wonders all the time. Whatever's popular on the radio today, they're going to play it uh, over and 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 over again, and we'll get sick of it after three weeks, and then we'll never hear it again. But in 20 years, it's going to be really cool again. Um, and we'll listen to it a few times, be nostalgic, and then move on to whatever's next. So, this is the water we swim in. 
You can't, you can't use me as an example, Charlie. I think you need to get back to it. Unlike most men your age, you have hair. You should use it to your benefit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah stop. Have you ever looked at uh, pictures of yourself from 10, 20 you know, years ago and just laughed? What was I thinking? <laughs> but 10 and 20 years ago, it looked good. <laughs> right? So... <laughs> yeah, if you've ever seen Steve's basketball videos, he had really short shorts, and that was the thing in basketball then. <laughs> that wasn't by choice. <laughs> now, <clears throat> when we talk about these types of culture, sin and rebellion can exist in all three of them. We have to be clear about that. However, <clears throat> well, let me say this first. High culture can express rebellion against God at a high level. But I will say it is not the greatest threat to us and us collectively, specifically. Um, because when the avant-garde does something stupid, virtually no one pays any attention to it. Um, in fact, everyone just generally kind of makes fun of it. <laughs> uh, if you've seriously ever seen what they put on the runways at fashion shows, they're like asking to be made fun of. That's high culture. And so people don't generally take that seriously. So even though there's a stream of rebellion against God in the midst of it, that is not our greatest uh, challenge as Christians. Um, rebellious culture is most dangerous to us when it's seductive, it's initially attractive, and this is why pop culture is so uh, dangerous and we have to be very careful. So, for example... A uh, penthouse model looks more like a real woman than does a pixelated Picasso of a naked woman, right? Uh, so which one is the greatest danger to us? Is it Picasso's distorted, twisted painting that doesn't really have a whole lot of root in reality, or is it the actual image that has been doctored up on Photoshop and still looks to be um, as real as possible? Um, so you see very quickly where the danger lies. Um, rebellious high culture presents a problem to um, really smart intellectual people, maybe. Um, they're the ones who are actually vulnerable to some of the really stupid ideas of the world. Um, modern architecture will prove that to us. Um, but pop culture, on the other hand, has a lot of connections and immediate desires being met um, and lusts of every man are wrapped up in them, and so uh, we struggle in how we interact with it because it has such a lure, it has such a draw. Um, and we have to consider, in the midst of it, the question of meaning. We all understand that, for example, particular audible sounds that we make in our culture can be very offensive. If I make certain noises with my mouth, which is what words are, uh, the way I say them and uh, how I put the letters together to form a word can be a very offensive thing to us. And the Bible teaches us over and over again that our words matter. They matter a great deal. Our language is important. But if I took those same audible sounds and noises and I went in the middle of um, uh, somewhere out in 
China, where the people don't know English, and I use those same audible sounds that here we don't even speak. We just maybe, if we refer to it, we use uh, the first letter of it or whatever else. And I said that word in the midst of China. What, what would that mean to them? Nothing. It would mean nothing to them. It's just a sound coming out of my mouth. And so what, you, what happens sometimes is um, you'll go to other cultures and they've learned uh, English through pop culture and they use language that you hear and it's grating on your ears, but you say, uh, you, you cannot say that. <laughs> and they don't understand why. Because they don't understand the connotation that that language brings. Well, this helps us to understand that meaning matters as well. What does it mean? And if in the meaning we find the human intention behind it is to disobey God, then what's sinful for me may not be sinful for someone else because it's about motive. Again, it comes back to the heart. So is a four-letter word and the, um, uh, the way that that word is formed, is it in and of itself a sin? Again, where is sin located? In the heart. So a word itself is not sinful, but our using it can be. Why? Because of the intention of my heart. It's a rebellion. It's a way that I use it in order to rebel against God because he has told me to let no corrupt things come out of my mouth. Well, who defines what's corrupt within this culture? Certain things are defined biblically, but certain other things have to be defined culturally. They have to be. Or else language is meaningless. It's just sort of floating out there and we can say whatever we want, however we want it. But then a lot of God's commands are thrown by the wayside. So meaning is essential also in discussing whether or not something is sinful. Um, Now, debates that Christians have about embracing pop culture are often hamstrung by um, the tenacity in which uh, we... Um, insist on discussing just these audible sounds um, and never actually dealing with the meaning of a word. Um, so evangelicals are good at this. We can, um, we can copy things really well. So anything the world produces, the evangelical world at some point has unfortunately tried to do as well, down to the slightest embellishment. So um, if you hear a guitar lick or you see a designer logo and you want to make it Christian, uh, Christians have done a really good job in trying to uh, do that. So you see popular clothing brands that the name is changed, so Abercrombie & Fitch becomes a breadcrumb and fish, um, and it's the same logo, but we've just copied it because we want to Christianize it. Um, And so that's one end of things, and the other, again, is sort of this uh, complete rejection and rebellion against it uh, because it's not inherently Christian on the front, and so we don't want anything to do with it on the back. But (laughs) modern evangelicals have been really good at copying pop culture and trying to make it our own in some way. Um, But the whole idea of meaning is left out of it. So if you've ever been to a karaoke um, where there's maybe someone from another country and they come to sing karaoke uh, and uh, they know all the ins and outs of the song and how it's sung, but they don't have any clue about the meaning of what they're singing. Um, So um, 
If you have、uh, a drunk man from Japan singing,、uh, "Man, I feel like a woman," he may know all the words. He may know all uh, uh, how to sing it and how to go up and down with the notes,、uh, but he's clueless on the meaning because he's never sat down to think through what exactly does this mean, what I'm singing.、Um, so we have to not just think about the item itself. We have to think about the heart, the intention, the motive, and the meaning. This is important for all of us as we deal through culture. So let me give you an example. Say we're dealing with, if I had a young believer who lives at home,、um, he has, against his parents' wishes, dyed his hair purple. He's going to come to me. His parents say, "Can you talk to our son? He has purple hair. We don't want that."、Um, he's going to come to my office, and I'm going to tell him, as I would tell him, that what he has done is sinful. Well, what's the first thing he's going to ask me? Yeah, why is it sinful? Show me in the Bible where it says purple hair is sinful. And he's going to ask me to take out, if he has any knowledge of this, my concordance to look it up and to show him how I、uh, use the Greek to determine that purple hair is sinful.、Um, but <coughs> why would I say that? Why would I tell him you having purple hair is sinful, Ken? There you go. Pretty simple, right? What was his doing that rooted in? Defiance and rebellion. Is having purple hair in and of itself sinful? Nope. Not at all. Is doing it against the wishes of those who have authority over you sinful? Yes, absolutely.、Um, and so, him asking me to show him where the Bible prohibits it is as unreasonable as the demand to、uh, find a list of English obscenities in the Greek lexicon. It comes back to meaning. What is the meaning here? So, the Bible condemns rebellion, and his purple hair. At that point in time, means rebellion, and if he agrees, he's admitted to sin. If he disagrees, then he's an empurpled ignoramus. So, we have to be able to determine meaning and work through those things on each instance. Can one person have purple hair and be sin be sinning in doing that, and someone else have purple hair and not be sinning in doing that? Yes, absolutely. And that's where evangelicals struggle, because we want everything to be one way or the other, black or white. Some, what's that? Not purple. Yes, <laughs> exactly. So when we deal with all the various manifestations, <coughs> excuse me, of pop culture, we have to learn to follow the teachings of the Apostle Paul, and Paul teaches us in the realm of things indifferent. Everything may be lawful, but not all things are necessary or helpful, and we will get into that later and what that means.、Uh, but we have to at least think about that on a surface level now. All things may be lawful, and if they're lawful, then we have to ask other questions: Are they necessary? Are they helpful? Because remember, nothing is neutral. We're either maturing in Christ or we are are not.、Um, So we have to reject this kind of thinking of lowest common denominator Christianity.、Um, tell me what I can do and I can't do, and I'll just stick to that, and I won't think about anything else. In fact, some people just prefer if we would stand up and just kind of give you the list of rules. All of our hearts are bent towards sort of this legal-hearted way of thinking. 
Tell me what to do, tell me what not to do, and as long as I stick in those parameters, what does that do to me? If I feel like I can stay within those parameters, what does that do to my heart? Yeah, it makes me very self-righteous, right? And so my finger comes out and I start pointing to everybody because they're not doing the same things I'm doing. When I've not stopped to think through, maybe they're not doing it is not sinful, but for me it is because of these circumstances. I don't want that. I just want black, I want white, and I'll stay within the boundaries that you've set for me. And when I step out of them, you're going to come and tell me that I've stepped out of them so I can step back into them. I don't want to have to think. I don't want to have to deal with anything that's gray. Um, People like that. We all inherently like that because our hearts are bound up in a legalistic tendency. Yeah. Everything we rebel against, sure. Sure. Yeah, so I think very quickly we're coming to realize that in all of this evaluation and questioning and dealing with culture, one of the key words that we have to really settle on is balance, right? There needs to be balance in the ways that we think and articulate and, um, and reason. And all of this, it requires a great deal of balance. If not, we're going to swing to one extreme or the other. And... Um, which may be comfortable for us, but it's certainly not helpful for the church. It's not helpful for our witness. It's not helpful um, overall for the kingdom of God. We need to not um, just go to the lowest common denominator. Um, and as for pop culture, <coughs> we'll end here this morning. A constant diet of it is only legitimate if you don't want to grow up. So put it in another way, pop culture items are very frequently inoffensive. They don't challenge us in any way. They're just there for our consumption. I mean, think about, if you could think of a pop culture song that you know, think about the words and how meaningless they are. They don't mean anything. I've, uh, Felicia and I talk about that sometimes as we listen to music and say, it's, it's catchy, I like listening to it, I like to sing it and all these things, but when I stop and think, what is the meaning of this? It, it has none. It's pointless. Sometimes I think they just throw words together because they rhyme and everyone catches on and it's, uh, and it's popular. Um, but the phrase itself, pop culture, the word culture, says there is a direction, there is a tendency and so it's our job, who, uh, those of us who aspire to be thinking Christians, who are reasonable and thoughtful, um, to ask what direction that is. Is it a direction we want to go in? And each item needs to be evaluated on its own merits. And then we have to ask a second, well, we, we ask what is the direction, and then the second question, do we want to go there? Because pop culture represents a full-scale revolt against cultural maturity. That's what it is. It is, in the end, it's a revolt against this idea that it would mature. We don't want it to mature. We want it to change. Um, All right. Well, we'll end there because next uh, next week we're going to talk about the attitudes. uh, There's four main attitudes that Christians have toward culture. So we'll define those four and uh, think about how, um, how we interact with each of those. So any uh, final thoughts? Sure. 
And so we've adapted the same mentality of the world. That's creativity has kind of fallen by the wayside in a lot of realms, and especially the church because of that. So that's a great point. We'll, we'll dive into that more. All right, well, let me pray and we'll, uh, we'll be done. Father, thank you again for our time this morning. We're grateful for this discussion and that in it to you, uh, by your word and by the principles of your word, are going to be pressing us to be more thoughtful, uh, to be more um, engaged in working through the details of life and not simply accepting or rejecting things on the surface, but working through the implications of all things. Um, Ultimately, our desire is to bring you glory and to grow and um, mature as your people. And uh, so we also want to enjoy the good gifts that you have given us, uh, but to enjoy them in a way that our hearts are not uh, prone to sin in the midst of it. So, uh, Lord, help us in this journey to be thoughtful Christians, uh, to keep our eyes open to the world around us, and to be able to uh, be more discerning um, of all uh, that, that we uh, that we consume on a daily basis. Uh, Lord, prepare our hearts now for worship as we come together uh, to partake of all of the means of grace that you've provided for us. May this be a rich and sweet time of uh, edifying fellowship and worship for your saints. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.